I want to welcome you to Young Adults Today podcast, where we talk about reaching young adults in our world today. I'm going to toss it over to our hosts, Micah and Josiah Keneally. What's up, guys? Hope you're feeling alive right now. I'm Micah Keneally, and I want to welcome you to Young Adults Today podcast, where we talk about reaching young adults in our world today. And like always, I'm with my husband and co-host, Josiah. Josiah, how are you doing? I'm doing phenomenal. And yourself? I'm doing great. It's going to be a great day. We have an amazing guest that's going to be joining us, who is personally talking about one of my favorite topics, one of the things that is true in any adult's life, whether you're single, dating, engaged, married, whatever it is, this is going to ring true to many hearts and many ears. So Josiah, would you be willing to introduce our phenomenal guest today? I just want to say hi, and then I'll introduce them, but Dr. Sean McDowell is on the other side of the line. Dr. Sean, how are you? You know what? I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. I appreciate it. Amidst the craziness of the world we live in, I got nothing to complain about and lots to be thankful for. We are truly doing better than we deserve, and um, Mm. a little bit about our guests today um, is Dr. Sean McDowell is a gifted communicator Mm -hmm. with a clear passion for equipping the church and particularly young people to make a case for the Christian faith. He connects with audiences in a tangible way through humor. We're gonna tap into humor, we're gonna have fun, and also stories while imparting hard evidence and logical support for viewing all areas of life through a biblical worldview. He's a professor of apologetics at Iola University and most recently the author of the brand new book called Chasing Love, sex, love, and relationships in a confused culture. And like Micah said, man, this is a topic that just applies to the lives of every young leader, every young learner, every young adult, and really just every individual and that's relationships. And we're excited to talk about that. But before we do, Dr. Sean, can you just kick off with some of your story, maybe a little bit of your journey of life, leadership, faith, and family with us today? Yeah, so that's obviously a huge question, but I've been married to my high school sweetheart for uh, 20 plus years. Let's go. We uh, First memory of her was in third grade, so we have one of those oh. stories going, going way back. Um, grew up in a small town in the mountains, and my parents are on staff with Crew Ministry, formerly Camps Crusade Thank for you. Christ. Praise God. And uh, some of your, your uh, listeners may recognize the name Josh McDowell. That's my dad. He's written a lot of books in areas of sexuality. In fact, what makes the book I'm doing now even more interesting, at least to me, is that in the 80s, my dad led the first global sexual purity abstinence campaign called Why Wait? And that's when I was 11, 12, 13, 14 years old. So he's this global spokesman and my hormones are kicking in. So I have a lot of thoughts about being raised with this purity message. But I uh, grew up in a Christian home. It always made sense to me. I, I guess once again, the thing is I went through a period of doubt in college and just told my parents, I was like, I'm not sure I really believe this. And my parents were basically said, hey, you got to seek after truth. Can't just believe because what we believe. Uh, we love you anyways, you know, and we're here for you. My parents didn't freak out. They just supported me. And so, you know, here I am. I teach apologetics at Biola University full-time. I teach high school part-time at a private school wow. uh, where my kids go to school. And then I get to speak and write, and I'm just all over social media too. It's true, <laughs> and that's how our paths crossed. That's right. Peter, of all things, <laughs> I've been following you, and we've been following each other for years. 
And yeah. Connected, I saw the launch of your new book and was really excited about that. I had always wondered, is there a connection between you and Dr. Josh? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dr. Shot, all I can envision is you um, sending a note to your now wife and your third graders, like, check the box. Do you like me? Yes or no? Like, <laughs> Yeah. You know what? I will tell you the story was in third. So we grew up in a little town called Julian, the mountains of San Diego, about 4,500 feet up, famous for apple pies and gold mines. Wow. And, you know, my public class that I graduated had, I think, 61 students, if I remember correctly. But in third grade... Stephanie was a year behind me and my friend, Jesse, who's my best friend at the time, had a crush on her. And all I remember is sitting on the bus in third grade, as best I can remember, he goes, hey, ask that girl, Stephanie, she thinks I'm cute. And I remember sitting by her, ask her, I don't know what she said, but bottom line is I married her and he didn't. And uh, my favorite song is the 80s song, Jesse's Girl. Oh, that's too fun. Well, she was obviously (laughs) worth the wait and worth waiting for, so... That is so fun. Dr. Sean, we know that you were kind of touched a little bit when during that phase of you growing up and your dad starting this huge movement and just setting the tone in such a unique way. Um, and such probably a challenging thing to talk about up and up front and in front of people and about sex and purity and all those different things. And obviously the title of your new book is Chasing Love, Sex, Love, and Relationships in a Confused Culture. Would you be willing just to start off by just sharing what sparked your specific desire to write this book. Yeah, so this is a part of the True Love Waits campaign, which started in 1993. And it's obviously morphed a ton in the past, what is that, 28 years or so. And they, they actually came to me when I was speaking at an event and said, would you be willing to write this book and head up the curriculum as the latest incarnation of true love waits and to be honest with you i kind of played hard to get because i was busy and i had stuff going on and wasn't sure i wanted to do that but more i thought about it and prayed about it i thought gosh i think i have a i think i have a unique voice meaning i only want to write a book when i feel like i can say something that's fresh and timely i've got three teens in my home i teach high school i've been speaking and writing on these topics for two and a half decades And, you know, I got this experience of growing up with a dad who was teaching (laughs) sexual purity. So I finally thought, you know what, I'm going to write this. But I approached it a little bit differently. I teach worldview and apologetics. So in every chapter, I answer a very practical question because I want kids and, and young adults to walk away and say, here's a practical thing I can do. But I also am convinced that most people in the church, including young people, have deeply imbibed a far more secular worldview than they even realize. And all the messages they hear about sex, love, and dating are filtered not really through scripture, but through secular ideas. And so I I spent a good amount of time in the book trying to uncover and help young people see, okay, wait a minute, do you see the cultural view of love? and how different this is from biblical love. Do you see the cultural view of freedom and how different this is from biblical freedom? And do you see how Jesus is calling us to something different? So that's what makes this book unique is it's very timely. A lot of the issues like sex abuse and culture, LGBTQ, pornography. I mean, I talk about those very frankly. And you said, uh, Mike, a minute ago, you're like, you know, it's awkward to talk about these issues. I got to be honest with you, growing up with the dad, it was like at the dinner table, we had these conversations. Uh So there is an awkward feel to it, but it just doesn't bother me. These are real life issues. 
and I'm happy to just talk about them. Right. I absolutely, I love this topic because I know I've been praying about this. I've written a book or a journal called Worth the Weight. And it just positioned the young adult's mm. heart to bring Christ back in the center of singleness, dating, engagement, and to keep Amen. their eyes steadfast on the, on God, not on what the world says or every single opportunity um, to, you know, go a direction that you shouldn't go. And that's what my dream and my passion is. My dream is for young adults and young adult leaders to be able to have open, honest conversations about um, sex, about relationships, about identity, and not in a perverse way or a bragging way that we kind of see through television, kind of like that locker room talk or whatever you want to say, but to sit sure. at the table and be like, How, what's the condition of your heart? Is this man pursuing you? Is he leading you to the foot of the cross or the foot of the bed? That's one thing I ask every young adult woman mm. that I lead uh, or mentor, I should say, or is a part of our leadership team or anything like that. And I think it's so important for the listener today to recognize that even though you may be single, you can still speak into relationships. Even though you're married and may have two, three, four, five kids, you can still speak into those seasons that you went through as a single, a dating, an engaged, and now a married person. So that's what we really want to do is empower young adults to have those conversations from the stage to the people that they're leading in a fresh fruitful way that's not awkward or everybody's cringing and you're just like slouching down in your seat and everybody's blushing and turning beet red but to make it a fun topic that is worth talking about but to know that what does the bible say and why is it worth waiting for in the context of marriage and i mean i would just add what micah said that a lot of times um, this is an intimidating topic for people and they respond one of two ways they really lean in or they really check out in a passive way, both mm. on the leadership side, but also on the just being involved in a ministry. And I think that our role is to steward leadership in a way that we lean in and those we lead lean in versus if we approach it very passively, um, then instead we have now handed over the microphone to TikTok, to mm. Instagram, to Tinder, to Hinge, to Netflix, to Hulu, to whatever the latest form of technology, all TV is educational, all social media education is educational. So the question is, what is it teaching them? What agenda does it come from? And so I think that that's why we have a passion to have this conversation mm -hmm. with you today is because specifically, Dr. Sean, a lot of our listeners are young leaders themselves, and many of them are single. And so can you just also respond to this like, what does Jesus have to say about singleness? So it's really interesting you ask this question because I just this morning taught a class at high school with juniors and seniors talking about singleness and the Bible. Mm -hmm. And we didn't actually go to Matthew 19 where Jesus talks about singleness. We went to 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul basically says, if you're not married, don't seek a spouse. If you're married, stay faithful to your spouse. Now, his point is not that marriage is not good and something you should seek after. Paul is saying to the church at Corinth, who deeply had their priorities mistaken and had a lot of sexual immorality, he's saying we have a higher calling on our lives to be content with who we are and to find our satisfaction in God himself. In fact, Paul even says there, I stopped with my, my students, I said, you realize Paul says, I wish all of you were as I am. And I asked him, I said, how many of you have heard a message in church? It's about 15 students on marriage. 
And all of them either full or half raised their hand. I said, how many of you have heard a message on singleness? None. None. One student was like marriage and singleness was added on to it. And I thought, but Paul is saying something different. Mm-hmm. He's saying marriage and singleness are two equal, honorable, beautiful ways of loving and serving the Lord mm-hmm. and serving the church. Then oh. we made a list. I said, what are the advantages of singleness and what are the challenges of singleness? And like Paul talks about advantages, you have freedom. Do what you want when you want to do it. You're free to serve the Lord. You don't have to provide for a whole family. You know, there's less financial, you know, stress probably as a whole. But married, they're like, well, there's no sex. I'm like, okay. You know, if you're single, there's no sex. Married, there is. That's a disadvantage. Um, There's also you're tending to your kids more and to your spouse, Paul says, rather than directly to the Lord. The point being, in the church, we kind of send the message that the prize goes to those who are married. Mm -hmm. That's really the A way of serving the Lord. And if you don't get married, we're going to put you in a little singles group over here, which is either for people, I'm often told, who sometimes feel bad for themselves being single or who are just looking to get married, rather than incorporating singles in a biblical model into the vibrant life of the church and recognizing the gift that singleness is. And so we send a message to many singles, if you're not married at 30 years old, when are you going to get married? What's wrong with you? And we're suspicious of them. Rather than recognizing what Jesus and Paul teach, that both are good, That's both good. are beautiful, honorable ways of serving the Lord. So actually in the book, it's interesting, the middle part of the book, I talk about sex, marriage, and singleness. But I arranged it first, the chapter of sex, and then singleness, and then marriage at the end. It was a small way of just overturning the narrative that yeah. everybody is supposed to get married. And there's something wrong with single. So that's what I think scripture teaches. And we desperately need to regather that for a bunch of reasons within the church. Amen to that. Dr. Sean, I think that is dead on. Like, like Paul says, singleness is a gift and marriage is a gift. And I remember being a part of a, a big church and, you know, involved with Josiah um, in his ministry as we were dating, um, mm-hmm. just came alongside and helped lead the women's side of young adults. And he was leading the, the young men. And I remember the older men in the church, like Micah, uh, before we dated, actually, they're like, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you married? So those two things. And then one said, you're just too picky. And I'm like, time out. I'm not particular. <laughs> and I've been praying for my spouse. And when that spouse comes along, they're going to realize it in the moment when God's going to speak to them to start pursuing me. So there's, and I was 30 when we got married. So there's this level of impatience that can come to the human heart of comparison. Like, why am I not married? My mom was married at 24 and had five kids by the time she was 30. Like you kind of sure, sure. those people around you or the family trees or kind of where your friend group is going. Um, but we know that there's just a lot of confusion in the world in which we live right now, not even in the, in the church and not in outside the church, but I would say both sides. Yeah. In just the culture at large. For sure. And one of the defining uh, topics that you talk about um, in your book and this kind of in the church today is the question that people are asking and they're asking, what does the gospel say about the LGBTQ plus issues? Like, what is it truly saying? Can God still love me? All those questions wrapped around that. Can you unpack some of that for the listener and us today? 
Yeah, this is a huge question. We could spend an entire podcast just on the T or the L or the G, but let me make a few points. The first thing the Bible says is that everybody, regardless of their sexual orientation or identity or behavior, is made in the image of God and has infinite dignity, value, and worth. I was having a debate with a former evangelist who became an atheist, and he said one of the things that changed him is when he learned that the Bible teaches that gays are an abomination. I said, where does the Bible teach that? And the answer is it doesn't. Leviticus 18, it talks about certain behavior being abominable, but it calls a lot of things like lying and murder and a whole bunch of behavior abominable. (laughs) Right? In fact, Scripture says all of us are desperately wicked and sinful before the Lord. The Bible does not say gay people or LGBTQ people are abominable. They are made in the image of God and have value as beings that God yearns to be in relationship with. Second is we have to remember that it is within Christianity that we get the ethic of loving our neighbors. Now, of course, this is built into our Jewish roots, Mm -hmm. but it's Jesus who told the story of the good Samaritan. He's the one who, who is your neighbor? It's the person who's near you, who's hurting, that you can help, regardless of your religious or ethnic identities. So as we approach this LGBTQ conversation, remember that they're made in the image of God, and Christians are called to love our neighbors. The third thing I'd say is there's an awful lot of LGBTQ people that I've read and I've had conversations with that feel deeply hurt by the church. Now, many of those are valid. Some are because of the ethic that the church teaches. And I'm not going to soften what Jesus taught so as not to offend somebody. But with that said, we have to own that in the church, we have not always treated LGBTQ people with the love that they deserve as human beings. And many times we've had a double standard, like, well, we're okay with divorce, but not same-sex marriage. It's like, okay, wait a minute. What does scripture really say about this? We're going to let gossip go, but we're not going to be okay with transgenderism. Like, okay, let's look inside to our own house. And there's a lot of people who have been hurt and recognize some of the hypocrisy within the fold. With all those things said, when it's all said and done for Christians, the question is, is there a God who's designed us to live a certain way? That's a question. And has he revealed this design? So as it comes to my smartphone, there's a maker of the smartphone. And it's only when we understand the design of the phone and use it according to the way it's meant to be used that we're really set free. When it comes to sexuality as a whole, that's the question. Did God design sex to be between one man and one woman in a committed marital relationship for life? And I think the answer, looking biologically in the natural world and looking at scripture, is that that's very clear. We also see in scripture when it comes to the the question of gender, that God made them male and female, that gender is something essential about who we are, and that we are gendered beings, and we are to live with our body and our soul in congruence together. So we're called to love our LGBTQ neighbors and friends, yet we also have to stay faithful to what Jesus taught about the body, about sex, and about relationships. And that's where the rub becomes, 
because in our culture, if you don't celebrate and embrace certain behavior and forms of relationships, by definition, you're a bigot, you're homophobic, you're heterosexist, you are intolerant, and you are harmful. And many Christians feel that weight and compromise their teachings. That's not okay. We need to feel that weight and lean in and better love people while staying faithful to what Jesus taught. So good. That's so good. I have a question. This is something that I've come up against. And some people will say, love the sinner, hate the sin. So I'm going to love the person who's choosing to live a certain way, but I, I don't necessarily agree with the way that they're living. And some people who are, I have friends who are gay, who are openly gay, and they would say, well, if you don't love the life that I'm living, then you don't love me. So how do you respond to people in love when they attach their the lifestyle they're choosing to live becomes their identity. And that's like their leading thing. Hi, my name's so-and-so I'm gay or I'm, you know, whatever. How do you, how do we as leaders better love the person and not focus on the sin? Like I've just seen that. Yeah, so healthy. Yeah. I just would love insight. <laughs> that's, that's a great question. I would say a couple of things. First off, I'm not a huge fan of the phrase, love the sinner, right. hate the sin. Because I think it communicates, well, those are the sinners over there, right. but I'm not a sinner. And right. clearly scripture doesn't <laughs> teach that. We are all desperate sinners before the Lord. Um, so I, I don't think, and I know you're just using the way people use it, but yeah. I think we should steer away from that phrase. Um, the second thing is you might do everything biblically right. And this person will say, you know what, Micah, you're a bigot. And I hate you and walk away. Mm -hmm. That might be what happens. Look, Jesus said to the rich young ruler, sell everything you have, give it to the poor. And he let him walk away. Mm -hmm. So there's no guaranteed formula that says, if you just do these things, then your friends will love and respect you. Now that said, I found a lot of people, at least in conversation and what I've read and people I know that people do want to be in relationships, even with those who view the world differently. So I found if we're charitable and we're kind and we're gracious, most people will want to be in relationship with us. Now, here's the way I framed it at times in conversation when somebody says the way you worded it, hey, I'm gay. If you don't love the way I behave, you're not really loving me. Mm -hmm. I would say, help, help me understand. It sounds like it's very important for you to be authentic to who you are. Yeah, I'm gay. I'd say, okay, I, I understand that. There's something about integrity and living out who we are and being accepted by other people. Is that how you feel? Yes, I feel you should accept me. Okay, so if that's important for you, do you want me also to live out who I really am? I assume you're not given a standard that applies only to you that doesn't apply to me. You want me to be authentic too, right? Yes. Well, I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus. I fall short every day, but my goal in life is to live the way Jesus wanted me to live. I don't know anybody who loved the marginalized, who loved the poor, who loved the broken better than Jesus did. But Jesus also had a view about marriage. And because I want to be authentic, like you want to be authentic, I don't feel like I can pick and choose his words and be authentic to myself 
in the same way you want to be authentic to yourself. So why can't we just agree to disagree, mm-hmm. be who we each truly are, and love each other in relationship? Isn't that what makes a relationship meaningful? Mm-hmm. When you differ with somebody and still find a way to love across your differences. I am willing and eager to do that with you because my sense is that you know a lot of things and have experiences in life I can learn from. If we're going to be in a relationship, you're going to have to return the favor. <laughs> I mean, that's just what I would say, that's something okay. to that effect. And if somebody goes, no, you're a bigot, then there's nothing you can do right. other than pray for the person, mm-hmm. keep showering that person with kindness and patience. And I think in some sense, it's just showing when people hear the narrative, because it's everywhere in our culture, Christians are bigot and they're intolerant. It's when that Christian is kind and patient and genuinely loving, and we go out of our way that it starts to slowly chip away at that narrative. I mean, the Bible says it's your kindness that leads to repentance. So lead with love, lead with kindness. And in many cases, that will soften somebody. That's amazing. Oh my gosh. I love how practical that was. So thanks for that. And I, I think the two things, Dr. Sean, that stand out to me about the last little bit that you just shared in that segment was Number one, you talked about having relationships. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so significant for leaders because any form of leadership is dependent on relationships. Leadership is inseparable from relationships Mm -hmm. of all kinds. And I think that it's one thing if we can get along with people who think like us, dress like us, act like us, you know, and, and all of those things. And it's another thing to truly have relationships with our neighbors across the street, with people Amen. at the gym, with people at the church, mm-hmm. or with people who are just strangers. different, yeah, strangers, <laughs> and they're different than us. And it impacts our working, it impacts our living. And the other thing that you said is to, to really be open and willing to listen, mm-hmm. to ask questions, and ultimately to have conversations. And I think that if we would all do those two things, of number one, be engaged in relationships, and number two, be engaged in conversations, um, a lot of tension is dissolved right there just by being yeah, just presence mm-hmm. and by being a good friend, a good listener. And one of those relationships that a lot of people are really curious about, we talked about singleness a whole bunch, and I love that. Another one that we talked about is, and we'd like to touch on, is marriage. And marriage involves a lot of, you know, a relationship and a lot of conversations. Can you just describe, like you did with singleness, can you also talk about like God's plan and intention for marriage? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So when you ask people, what's the purpose of marriage, Christian or not, typically you'll hear have kids and companionship. And both those are a part of marriage. Adam was alone, right? Creates Eve as a companion. It says the man leaves his father and mother, clings to his wife, and the two shall become one, and they populate the earth through procreation. So companionship and procreation are part of marriage. But neither of, at least one of those two, there will be no marriage or procreation in heaven. Mm -hmm. Marriage is temporary for this life. Its primary purpose is actually as a metaphor or a sign to mirror God's love for his people. 
So of all the relationships that God chooses to use to describe the church as, you know, the bride of Christ and Christ is the broom. It's not the broom. Christ is the groom. The groom. <laughs> you, the broom. You meant what I knew. That, that the church is the bride and Christ is the groom. Of all the relationships, father and child or siblings or best friends, God chooses that relationship so we understand his unfailing commitment and love for the church. That means our marriages, yes, populate, feel the earth, yes, companionship. Actually, the biggest part of our marriage is to mirror to the world God's love for the church. That changes. So no longer is our marriage just horizontal. Now our marriage is vertical because it carries a greater purpose. And I, I haven't done this study, but I think if you asked, if you asked non-believers, you certainly wouldn't get that answer. I think if you asked most Christians, you probably would not get that answer because we've bought a narrative largely from the culture about, well, have babies, find your soulmate, companionship, you know, your marriage, finally find that one and you live happily ever after. That's a horizontal view of marriage. Right. Marriage is about so much more. So long with singleness, it helps us anticipate eternity, although in different ways, and is the prime way we understand God's love for the church. I mean, the Bible begins with a wedding, mm -hmm. and the Bible ends with a wedding. Amazing. By the way, in the entire Torah, the longest chapter is about a marriage and a wedding with Isaac and Rebekah. There's all these hints over scripture that marriage matters deeply to God. That's so good. Well, I just have a question here. We know that many of our listeners are uh, maybe single, maybe wanting to be married or maybe married. Mm -hmm. Kind of, we have a totally. variety of listeners and I just know that even when you get married, purity is still important. If you don't deal with certain things in your singleness, whether it's an addiction, whether it's um, lust, whatever it could be that you could be wrestling with in your singleness, you automatically bring that into marriage. And I would just ask the question, Dr. Sean, like how would you encourage young leaders to remain pure no matter what season of relationship status they are in? Well, I think you're absolutely right. There's so many people I meet, especially young people who think when they get married, they'll magically quit pornography because right. they have the real thing. And it doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. I tell students all the time, I say, if you cannot cultivate self-control before you're married, you will not magically cultivate self-control when you get married. Wow. It doesn't change. So the kind of habits we build now when you're 12, 15, 18, in your 20s, whatever season it is before you get married, carry into your marriage. Mm -hmm. So true. So that means through the Holy Spirit, through accountability, through certain spiritual disciplines, we can become the kind of people that make the choices God wants us to make. So in the, one of the early chapters in, in uh, the book, I talk about freedom. I'm talking about how our culture thinks freedom is doing whatever you want to do as long as it feels good and you decide it for yourself. Mm -hmm. I say, let's take a piano. Is somebody who sits down at a piano and just says, I can bang whatever keys I want to and treat a piano however I want to free. We might say in one sense, but actually the free person is somebody who sits down and who has taken the time to develop the discipline of playing the piano the way it's meant to be played. 
actually the person who's developed discipline and understands the purpose of the piano and uses it accordingly is more free than the person who sits down and just bangs however they want to. Mm -hmm. But that only comes by discipline. That comes by cultivating certain characteristics over time to learn that skill. Well, that's true of our spiritual life. The Holy Spirit is conforming us, but we practice certain disciplines, solitude, reading the scriptures, confession, as a way of cultivating a certain character and then learning to have self-control. So I, I, this is where I benefit a lot from Catholic writers who say, if you can't say no to an extra bag of chips and develop discipline in your life, you're not going to be able to say no to sexual pressure in your life. So cultivate certain disciplines to help you become the kind of person that these habits become your character, that you're not controlled by them. And that takes time and that takes certain disciplines. So there's practical things people can do like, you know, having accountability in your life, uh, having certain software. I have um, covenant eyes on my computer. It's on my phone. It sends a thing to my wife. And I honestly, I actually forget about it most of the time, but I just put it there just yep. as a way of building in accountability. Absolutely. So there's practical things that we can do, especially younger people. Like don't be on your phone at two o'clock in the morning alone. Like you're just inviting right. dumb decisions when you're tired and lonely and bored. Yeah. Like it's just, some of this is learning to arrange our lives in a way that resists some of those temptations. But I'll tell you one, one quick story of how important this is. And um, when my wife and I got engaged, I remember, I mean, I gave her, we got engaged at outside at this Marriott in San Diego. I just gave my wife a very passionate kiss. There were like people around, but I didn't even care because she just said, yes, we're going to get married. And I remember something like it almost changed in my mind, like we are going to get married in a matter of months. We're going to be sexually active. Mm -hmm. And it's like this mental shift changed and in my mind. I started thinking, well, we're going to get married anyways. What's a big deal? Like this mental pushing boundaries. And I thought, whoa, like, what am I doing? This is a disaster. So I went to my wife and I said, look, we're going to be married in six months. Why don't we just not even kiss until we're at the altar? At first, she thought I was crazy, and then she understood why. And it almost, and I'm not saying everyone has to do this. My point is not that kissing's bad, but it almost made the engagement so much easier because it took all of the physical pressure away. Yeah. yeah. Fast forward 20 years, I travel and I speak. You know what? My wife trusts me, and she's not worried that I'm cheating on her. Why? Because when we were engaged, I said, let's err on the side of being smart and having boundaries. Mm -hmm. It built trust with her. That's paying off now decades later. Can you imagine if I was like, you know what? Let's just go further. Let's sleep around. We're getting married anyways. In the back of her mind would be, you know what? He was willing to push boundaries then. Mm -hmm. I wonder what he's pushing now. That didn't cross my mind when I was 23, I guess it was. And again, I'm not saying kissing is bad. I'm just saying for me at that point, that was a smart, safe, easy way to say, we're going to be together for the rest of our lives. Let's err on the side of being cautious rather than doing what some of my friends had done, which is just start sleeping around before they're married because they're going to get married anyways. Mm -hmm. And then inviting that sin into their marriage that has repercussions in ways they can never, ever even imagine at that stage in their life.
Right. Oh my gosh. I think what you just said, Dr. Sean, what's echoing in my mind is this, that you described a discipline then as a young adult, and now you're inheriting the, the dividends now of trust and a healthy foundation of building on the rock. And I think the other option is to compromise now and there's consequences later. Mm -hmm. And I just look at that picture of the discipline, which leads to dividends or the compromise that can lead to consequences. And that's amazing. And one off script question that was sparked in my mind is we're talking of the season of life of teenagers, college students, 20 somethings. And I really, because you're a college professor, you have a global view of the church. I really want to pick your brain off script for a second of why do you feel that young adult ministry is important for churches, for campuses, and for leaders to prioritize in general? Wow, that's a huge question. I, you know what? I think young adults are our leaders today and tomorrow. And that's why I've committed my life, not so much, although I teach at a university, so I do teach some young adults, but a lot to high school students I speak to as well. That's where I've committed my life. Probably junior high to college is probably the age I reach at because you're making life decisions that'll be with you for the rest of your life. And you're forming your worldview in a way that many people are not once they get to the 30s, 40s, and 50s. So there's something about the season, but it's also many people are not Many are not married yet. They have a certain kind of freedom we've been talking about to learn, to grow, to experiment. There's energy. There's passion at this stage of life. There's less of a fear of failure. Like if I try something out and fail, I'm like, oh, I just brought my whole family down with me. Like that makes people get more conservative as they get older. Young people are like, let's do this. Let's go. So there's a gift in that age of an eagerness, of an energy, but also many young adult studies show are really on the brink of like, am I going to embrace and live out this biblical worldview or am I going to be taken by the ideas of the world? So there's huge opportunity at this stage, but I also think there's huge risk for people who aren't grounded biblically. That's why I love it. It's just an exciting season of change and influence that can pay dividends in somebody's life for, for eternity. That's so good. Well, Dr. Sean, we've come to one of our favorite parts of the, the segment here. And we were wondering, are you ready for five final thoughts in five minutes? It's called five and five. I will do my best. <laughs> These are rapid fire questions. We're trying something brand new. I have a whole stack of cards cool. here with random questions on them. So this means Love it. I don't know what they are going to be. Yeah. Micah doesn't know what I'm they're going to be. And you don't know what they're going to be. So it's it's all on the table. Assume, assuming you guys aren't magicians, but I have no reason to believe that, that I'll buy the narrative that they're surprised. So uh, go ahead. I'm ready. Bring right. it. Name a person in your life who motivates you to be a better person. Uh, no question, my wife. No question about it. We were just watching Cobra Kai and talking about how the women in this program like domesticate and motivate and like give perspective to the men whether they intended it, intended it that way or not, the two men would destroy their lives if it were not for the women in this program. <laughs> and I watch that. I'm like, man, my wife just motivates me and she gives me perspective in the same way. So no question about it, my wife. A wife is a gift. That's right. A man is a gift. Okay. Question number three, what is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? 
this will be interesting because you live in a beautiful place as well. I do. You know, I loved, we got to, my dad and I got to speak with our families on a cruise to Alaska, maybe a decade ago. Wow. And some of the places like Glacier Bay, the only word is just stunning to capture the beauty. So that is up there for me. Okay. Um, question number, here, here we go. I'm going to ask you this. Ball. It's a curveball for you. And then you get a curveball for us. I see some shoes behind you. In your, you know, in your bookshelf and in your decorations. Are you a shoe guy? If so, what kind of shoes are your favorite dream shoes? So yes, I'm a shoe guy. And there's two things for this. Number one, my dad has a crazy collection of the most diverse shoes you will ever see. Wow. Everywhere he goes, he wears fun, unique shoes. My son is, he has like 65,000 followers on TikTok and a bunch on Instagram. At 16 years old, he's a reseller. Yep. So he buys you shoes. Oh, yeah fixed them up, resells them, and has become like, you know, a little TikTok star in his world. So both of them have gotten me into shoes. I love Nikes. I love Jordans. I played basketball in college, so I've always loved the game. And actually, those behind me are the 1985 original Jordan 1s, yeah. the black and white highs. So a friend of ours had them and I just use them as a prop. I mean, they're worth a ridiculous amount. And as I move, move my head, I guess I can't see it because it's a podcast. There's a pair of 2001 mid Jordan ones that were gifted to me uh, at an event I was speaking at. And I brought them home. I was about to try them on. And my son goes, dad, don't try them on. They're dead stock, which means nobody's ever tried them on the original box they're worth a ton of money and they're just a gift. Someone gave them to me. So believe it or not, I keep it on my shelf just to remind myself to be generous wow. and kind towards other people. Cause that guy gave me an expensive pair of shoes just as a gift. So I see it and I love them. And second, I'm like, ask myself all the time. Am I that generous towards other people? Wow. And do they really fit me? <laughs> nah, I'll never know. Cause if You'll I try know. them on, then they're not dead stock. <laughs> That's so good. Okay. Here's a fun question. Here's the curveball. If you could ask Josiah and myself one question today, what would you ask us? What is your key to a successful marriage? One thing each above all else, do this and your marriage will work. And it doesn't have to be that you do this perfectly. What's the one thing you would say? Because I speak to a lot of students and I could use this. I could say, Josiah and Micah told me, this is what makes their marriage work. What would it be? Yeah. You know, I think for me, I'll go first. You go first. And, and Micah can Don't go after. Don't look at my answer. I won't look at hers. She's writing hers down. But I would say, after <laughs> Sean, for us, it's like, I think the key to the marriage is, um, a confident commitment. And what I mean by that okay. is like, divorce is not an option. So Amen. we're on the same team. And when mm -hmm. that, like when Christ is at the center, it gives us a confident commitment that I know that I can give Micah the benefit of the doubt. And I know that um, even though I'm not entitled to the benefit of the doubt, when we're on the mm -hmm. same team, it doesn't mean we don't have different perspectives or different opinions um, or different values even sometimes, but it does mean that we've prioritized each other mm -hmm. in a way that's like, we're praying every day for each other. We're, if one of us go, starts to fall asleep and we haven't prayed yet, we'll say, uh, <laughs> you haven't blessed me yet. And so I, love it. I, think, that, I think that those, uh, I guess that, okay. that would be my answer. Um, Confident commitment is great. 
Yeah, I'll do a little different route. I put pure hearted communication. And I think okay. your heart is significant to um, extend love and grace towards each other, no matter what our words are, no matter what our feelings are, no matter what emotions may be taking place. And to know that we can lovingly approach each other in any conversation with any concern, with any words of wisdom, um, and never have a, a cutting, a critical spirit. But I just want to be in tune with the Holy Spirit. So that's why I think I put pure hearted communication, because knowing that our hearts are in the right place. Um, and the conversation can be had no matter how difficult or challenging or adventurous it really is. So I would say those three words. Love it. So you guys killed it. Good job. Last question. Our last question, Bonus. Dr. Sean, this is um, the note we like to leave things on for young adults today podcast. And for the listener who's tuning in right now, if you were across at a coffee shop, enjoying a latte with them, or speaking to an audience that was filled with college pastors and young leaders, what would be one thing that God's placed on your heart that you'd like to leave them with today? Boy, that's a huge question. You know what? One thing I've been thinking about recently is humility. And I think about this because I don't have it down. I have a long ways to go. But C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity calls, calls pride at the core of every sin. Mm -hmm. Basically, every sin we commit is, I deserve this, I want to do this, I'm having it my way, which is pride at the root of them. And pride is the true anti-God state. I happen to think we are moving increasingly towards a post, if not anti-Christian culture. Totally. Mm -hmm where it'll cost people something to actually believe in Jesus and live yeah. it out. Yeah. And I think the only way we cannot become angry at people is if we humble ourselves because Jesus was put to death in the greatest injustice in the history of the world, mm -hmm. the worst punishment for the only innocent person who's ever lived. Right. And I find myself, I look at the injustice in the world and I can get angry and I can get ticked politically. And I just remind myself, God is sovereign. And why am I getting angry? Is it because of my own pride? Because I want to win or I want to be right? Or am I willing to humble myself like Jesus did in Philippians 2, 5 through 7 to take on you know, the, the likeness of a servant? So... I would just encourage those watching this, and this is really speaking more to myself than them, to continue to cultivate humility in your life, because not only will that make a difference for the kingdom, that's what God calls us to do. Amen. What a note to leave us with. And as we wrap up, Dr. Sean, I just want to say thank you so much for investing in this community yes. of young leaders. You guys are awesome. Thanks for having me on. Keep up the good, good work. Thank of course. You. And as you, as a listener, just want to find out more about Dr. Sean McDowell, we again want to say thank you for a great conversation. And you can find out more about Dr. Sean and his latest book, mm -hmm. Chasing Love, which is sex, love, and relationships in a confused culture. When you connect with us on our website at youngadults.today, as well as in our show notes, link to this podcast. Thanks so much and have a great day.
thanks for listening to today's conversation on the Young Adults Today podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, go ahead and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. I'm getting judged up right now, yeah.